compassion and love your enemies. Is Jesus here is trying to help us understand what he said in verses 17 to 20, which is kind of the central understanding of all of this, is where he says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And so these six examples that he gives are showing us that the Old Testament that was written for us was written for our good, and it had purpose and it had meaning. The problem was not with the laws themselves, but was with the ways in which we interpreted and understood them in one sense. And so Jesus comes and Jesus comes to the earth and he actually does obey uh, God the Father completely, fully. And because of that, he is then in a unique position where he can sacrifice himself on the cross for the sins of us. And so we can find forgiveness. The problem with the Old Testament laws are, are, well, the reality is we can't follow them because we have sin nature. But it's not a matter of trying to look at this and going, well, so we shouldn't follow them. Jesus here reinterprets it for us saying, these things, anger, lust, and divorce that we looked at last week and the three we're going to look at this morning, is if we are in Christ, meaning if you have put your faith in Jesus, if you have made him the Lord and Savior of your life, then you have been uniquely gifted with the Holy Spirit who actually is going to equip you to be able to be this type of person, one that as of last week, one that does not get angry with those who angry with them, but extends uh, grace and compassion. One that doesn't lust for things that they don't have because they see that everything that they need is found in Jesus. And one that won't betray their spouse because they recognize that that marriage is meant to represent Christ's covenant relationship with the church. And so that's the point of this. And these next three that we're going to read here in just a moment continue on with that same understanding. These three things are good. Um, well, we're, we'll explain it a little bit. Jesus takes some good and then some that was misinterpreted, misused, and said, this is not the point. Understand it correctly. And so uh, that's why I think these chapters are so crucial because if Jesus is teaching us, here's how to interpret your Bible, especially for those of us now who, when we read the Old Testament laws and, and kind of like the turtle said, right, don't shave and don't eat pork, and we go, that doesn't make any sense. Why would those be back there? Is the more we understand those laws correctly, the way that God intended to give them to the Israelites, the way that they should have interpreted it, the more we're going to interpret the whole of Scripture correctly. And I think sometimes we have this dichotomy where we're like, I, I like the New Testament, I can understand that, I can get on board with that, but the Old Testament's just too confusing. It's probably because we're not interpreting it in the light of how Jesus taught us to in these verses. So, this is where we're going to go. Um, this is not about a religious sense of completely obeying these things at all times so that you can earn salvation. I need to clarify that probably, you know, more often than I do is not one of us are, are good enough in that sense where we can stand before uh, a holy God and say, you know what, I was, I was good. I did everything right. I deserve to be in heaven. The point is that we are not good enough, and yet through Jesus' blood, we find salvation. And through finding salvation, we long to honor Christ with how we live. So let's read these last three examples in chapter 5 together, and then we'll take them one at a time. So this is starting in Matthew five thirty-three. It says this. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, 
or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And we're going to get to that verse because that one sounds very, very, uh, how, do we, how could we possibly do that? And so we'll explain that in a minute. But let's, let's start with oaths as we think about it. Now, Oaths is kind of uh, a strange example maybe to us in, in modern times, but, you know, I, we probably don't make oaths in our normal day-to-day life, but you've probably seen it in movies or read about it in, in books. Um, we talked about this at our Young Adult Bible Study on Tuesday um, in this sense, is if someone, let's say you were going to go buy a car, right, and you go and meet the person and you test out the car, and they say, yeah, the car is perfect working condition, I swear on my great-grandmother's grave. Do you trust them more or less? Right? It's like, why, why would you have to say that? Like, why can't I just trust what you're going to say? Well, that's kind of the idea of what Jesus is getting at here. But for us to understand this correctly, we need to go back to something that perhaps many of you don't know. Has anyone heard of the Mishnah? So the Mishnah, I'm going to read this so I don't get it wrong, is a collection of writings from the oral tradition of Jewish laws. In them, there are sections detailing the various laws that we find in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, and then many, many others. It's interpretation of the law from the religious leaders in in that day. And so that's what Jesus is correcting. In the Mishnah, there was this huge section on oaths, and what was an acceptable oath, and what was a legally binding oath, and what wasn't a binding oath. And so when you read kind of here, you know, don't take an oath either by heaven or earth or, or, or by Jerusalem or, you know, by your own head even. Like, like, what does this mean? Is Jesus is speaking directly into a culture that took this idea of oaths and, and created so many little nuances all around it that it lost all of its meaning. Because you will see in the Old Testament, and this is why some people get confused, Jesus says, don't take an oath, but you'll see in the, New, or in the Old Testament, there are oaths that are taken. And it seems to be a positive thing in the narrative. It seems like it's a good thing. So then it, it, Jesus is saying that was bad. Again, the context leads us to this place where Jesus goes, look, this was a good rule that was given to you by God. This was good, but you've twisted it all up. And you've made so many little additional rules on it. And, and you could probably all say that in your life. You have areas where you get the understanding, the heart of the rule you get. But you go, man, all these details, like it's redundant or it's ridiculous or it, or it handcuffs you and it starts getting confused. Well, in the Jewish faith, it was if, if, you, 
If you made an oath on God, on his name, then you were legally bound. But if it was by heaven, the argument was, well, that's just God's dwelling place, so it's not quite as good, so it's like a second-tier oath. And then the earth that he created, well, that's God's footstool, so it's like, like his third-tier oath. And then, and then your own head, well, that would be like saying, I swear to you on my own life. Well, that's kind of God's created you, and so God's at the head or at the center of all of those things. And so why are you dichotomizing those things and making them different when they're actually all part of the same? And so Jesus' frustration is not with the law. His frustration is with how they had said, we're going to add to this law and make it so confusing to understand that people don't even know what a valid oath and what, what an invalid oath is. What's Jesus' point generically Generically speaking, Leon Morris sums it up perfectly. He says, the important thing is this. Jesus is saying, tell the truth. Keep one's pledges without insisting that a certain form of words must be used to make it binding. And then he concludes by saying this. No oath is necessary for the truthful person. So Jesus' point here to his followers is that you ought to have a different ethic or a different ethos than every other person in the world is yours is based on what is true and what is right. And so when you speak, you speak truth. That's what a follower of Jesus should look like. Now, of course, when we think about it in that context, how many of us are always truthful or have always been truthful? Right? We've heard the story of the boy who cried wolf, right? Is you, you exaggerate or... I'm very bad at this, and Shayla reminds me, I, I, I love to use very general terms, like always, when it's sometimes. The boy who cries wolf goes, oh, this, there's danger, there's danger, there's danger, and after a few times, you just, you no longer listen to him. How many of you know people in your life that when they tell you, yeah, I'm going to be there, I'm going to do that, I promise this, that you don't really believe it? Maybe a harder question is how many of us fit that same description? Is what Jesus is trying to show us and tell us is that the way in which we live should be a way of integrity and in truth. And so when I speak something, when I say I'm going to, or I will, or I promise, I better hold that promise. Again, we're not talking about this legalistic set of, of rituals. There are going to be examples where unforeseen circumstances make it so that we can't fulfill something that we said. We need to understand that. We need to have grace for that. But we shouldn't just generally be always going, yeah, yeah, it's fine. I'll, I'll do. I learned this quickly in church ministry. Shayla's a very factual, detailed person. Now, living right here, this is easy because it's 10 seconds to go home. But when we lived in Winnipeg, it was about a 15, 20-minute drive. And to say things like, Greg, we, we got we to gotta go home. There's something in the oven or whatever it might be. Uh, church is done. We, we got to go. And I'll be like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. Jim's just shaking his head at the back. Yeah, he knows that's not true, right? And, and Shayla knew that was not true. Now, that's what I, I generally was trying to be like, yeah, I'll be there in five minutes. But what I learned quickly as, as she explained to me is it's far better to say, you know what? There's a few people that need to talk to me. I don't know how long this is going to be. That's far more truthful than to even have good intentions but fail those good intentions because then I lose credibility. And Jesus is teaching us here, you have got to be someone who is credible so that when you speak, you speak words that are true. 
Jesus says, let your yes be yes, and or simply let either say yes or no is how he puts it. And as I was studying that, this is the beauty of finding commentators that really have a specific area of focus, is something was shown to me that, that after the fact, you're kind of like, oh yeah, I probably should have realized that, but I didn't. See, this commentator ties it back to the serpent in the Garden of Eden and saying, when God spoke, what happened? The, wor- er- the earth, the people, the animals, everything was created by his word. His word was truth. Everything he said was good. When he told Adam and Eve, you can eat of everything here, but you don't eat from this. And he knew you don't want to eat. This is bad. This is everything that's good. He spoke truth. What did Satan or the serpent then say when he comes along? Did God really say this? He's trying to attack God's words. He's trying to twist them and make us doubt that God is truthful, and that what God says he's going to do. Will you really die, the serpent says? You surely won't die. Well, what happened? The wages of sin is death, just as God had promised. And so there's a tie back here. We're trying to learn of what it means to honor God. What does it mean to be this, this new kind of human as a Christian? It means that we represent God, and so what we speak should be truth. That's how we want to live. James picks this up in James chapter 5 when he says this, do not swear either by heaven or earth any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not be filled, so, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Craig Blomberg says it this way, Jesus followers should be people whose words are characterized by integrity and that no formal assurance of their truthfulness is needed. It's very simple, isn't it? But how hard is it to do? Again, without the Holy Spirit, can't do it. But praise the Lord, if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been given the Spirit. And you can submit to His will, you can can surrender to Him, and you can actually be equipped to be someone who speaks truth and praise the Lord for that. Jesus then moves into retaliation. Now, this is probably one that we can uh, identify with a little bit more in our world. When somebody wrongs us, what do we want? We want justice, don't we? When we wrong somebody else, what do we want? We want mercy. How do we find the balance of that? Well, here's where it gets interesting. Jesus, again, is not correcting a problem. He says, you've heard it said, An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's true. That comes right out of um, Exodus 21. But again, it comes out of a very specific context. Much like now, back then, uh, rich people kind of owned the court systems and they could bribe certain people in certain places so that they could oppress the poor or get away with things that they shouldn't have gotten away with. And the point of this law was that regardless of your uh, social or economic status, regardless of that, what, what you did had a just retribution to it. So if you wronged someone, even if they couldn't afford to you know, take you to court or, or if they were viewed poorly by the community in, in general, it didn't matter. Eid had a specific recompense behind it. 
And that's important because what God was doing is he was saying all humanity has, has dignity. It doesn't matter how wealthy or how poor. It doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter, you know, all those things that we divide, Jesus is, or God was saying none of those should be taken into account. And so an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, well, it, it's even misunderstood a little bit back then because even if you did, let's say your, your oxen gouged out someone's eye, is the point wasn't actually that you went and gouged out the eye of that other person. Generally speaking, it was a monetary fine that was put into place, but based on the severity of what had happened. So sometimes it was very much, your ox died, well now that ox needs to die. But the point of it generally was that you, no matter your place in society, you still had rights, you still had protection, and justice was still going to be afforded to you even if others wouldn't want to give it to you. And so that was the place from which it came from. But again, if you go into the Mishnah, you see all these laws and they started to, to like overcomplicate it more and more and more. And, and Jesus says this, okay, now you as a Christian, you as a follower of Jesus, you need to have a different ethos. You need to have a different way in which you see the world. When someone wrongs you, your heart shouldn't long for that to be restored. Your heart should be filled with compassion for them because they need to know who Jesus is. Now, there's a principle here that we need to understand so we don't take it too far. And so I want to read a quote from Wilkins. It's a little longer, but he says it so clearly. He says this. One should not return an insulting slap. This would lead to escalating violence in the case of a more serious assault. Jesus' words should not be taken to prohibit self-defense or, or fleeing from evil for a, often a failure to resist a violent attack leads to even more serious abuse. Acting in love toward an attacker will often include taking steps to prevent him from attacking, or from, sorry, prevent him from attempting further attacks. Jesus' teaching must be applied with the wisdom in the light of the related scriptures that address similar situations. The point is not just you have to be a doormat and you just have to endure abuse. That's not Jesus' point. But his point also is if you have been forgiven and if you have been graciously given this love and this mercy, then you should be eager to give that out and, and retribution shouldn't be your primary concern. Retaliation shouldn't be a part of a Christian. Rather, it should be recognizing the hurt, the need that somebody has. Or as one commentator put it, be the victim of some form of evil does not give us the right to hit back. If you're a parent, probably you've said that to your children at some point, right? Just because they hit you doesn't mean you hit them back, right? And when we start to understand this in the way that Jesus is trying to get us to see it, this law was and it was right, and, and it has meaning. But we need to understand it correctly. We need to interpret it correctly. I want to ad address verse 41 really quickly. Uh, sorry, verses 41 and 42 really quickly, just because sometimes this can get confused. If anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Again, if we take everything in the scriptures as completely literal all the time, well, you, you couldn't, right? Practically speaking, you just couldn't do that. If you gave 
to everyone who had need in this kind of a way, you would not have anything yourself, and then you would be the one that was in need, expecting others to give to you. And so there's, there's a problem here, but Augustine, who was the great theologian, died in the early 400s, said it so simply, says this, Jesus' point, give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. That makes it a little more complicated because that means that when we see someone in need, we have to figure out what is a way in which I can help. There's someone who has, has an issue that, that clearly needs help. Maybe I don't have the financial or the material things to help in that moment. But can I go alongside and can I offer a word of encouragement? Can I go and, and pray with? Can I fight for that person and try and advocate for them for a situation that they're facing? To be a Christian means we look at things so differently. Then Jesus finishes, and you can kind of see where he's going here as he hits retaliation. Now he's going to talk about all of these five are about how we love people. Right? When Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? First to love God and then to... Love your neighbor as yourself. So now Jesus is going to talk about what it means not not just to love one certain group of people. And and so here he says in 43, you've heard that it was said this, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, love your neighbor is found in Leviticus, but where in the Bible do you see hate your enemy? Trick question. Where is it? It's not. Right? So again, people, the religious leaders of those days, twisting scripture to going... Okay, yes, yes, you should love your neighbor. Absolutely, Jesus, Jesus is going to talk about and clarify that later. But it's clear in the Old Testament you should love your neighbor. But, but the one, the one uh, person who approaches Jesus with this question then goes seeking to justify himself. He asks what question? Who is my neighbor? Clearly not everyone is my neighbor. And Jesus says essentially, you know, clearly everyone is. Right? He, cl- he re-clarifies these things for us so that we would inter- interpret them correctly. So what does Jesus say? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Notice verse 45. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. To represent your Father who is in heaven. If you're a son or a daughter of the King, this is what you should look like. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This sounds impossible, doesn't it? If you're going through a situation where someone has wronged you or is, or is continually wronging you, it can be very easy to just be like, man, I just want to wash my hands of them and just have nothing to do with them anymore. Over it, I'm done. I've offered them grace. I've offered them mercy. I'm moving on. That's not what Jesus says here. And so again, kind of the point is, yeah, it's impossible to live that way unless what? Unless you live with the power of the Holy Spirit. Unless supernaturally you look to God for forgiveness when you don't want to give it. And God can give you that. There's a book by Richard Wombrandt called Tortured for Christ. And if you haven't read this book, I would strongly encourage you to go buy it right away. It's, it's a phenomenal read. In it, he documents being in a prison camp and being regularly beaten by guards. God began to work in Richard's heart, and his heart began to soften towards those guards that was beating him, and he began to pray for them. He began to pray out loud 
before them when they were outside of his cell. And even, and this is the crazy part in the book, he even prayed for them in the midst of the beating. That doesn't come because somebody just wanted to forgive someone. That, became, that came because they released their own, their own flesh. And they said, Holy Spirit, would you give me what I can't do? And he began to pray for those who were beating him. And it's a remarkable story. He says that there's this one moment that there was a realization that God wanted them to turn to him and that his co-prisoners with him were there to win those guards for Christ. When our perspective changes and we stop seeing ourselves as the victim and everything and we start to see, God, what are you trying to do in the midst of this? How can I be used even in the most awful, heinous, most just brutal situation possible? Well, I think if you read a book like this, you will be convicted because while we all have struggles and difficulties, and I'm not trying to trivialize any of them, is very few of us have been beaten for our faith regularly and yet found love and compassion towards our accuser. This is what it means to love your enemies. Again, I've said this lots. We as Christians should have a a different ethos, a different way in which we look at the world. We said this a few weeks ago, but Craig Blomberg said that as a Christian, our job is to permeate society as agents of redemption. Where you work, where you live, who you interact with. It's all for purpose. It's all that others might see Christ in you. And so the way in which you live has such a difference, has such a maybe even bizarreness to it that people look at you and go, why would you do that? Why would you forgive someone who's wronged you so many times? Why would you turn the other cheek? We could look at all six of these examples again. Why would you? And the answer is, why would I? Because of Jesus. Because he's given me a different way to live than what the world has taught me. And so Jesus concludes this section. It's called the antithesis section, these six things. He concludes it by saying, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Again, Wilkins has a really good quote here to help us understand that correctly. He says, scripture is a reflection of God himself as he has made his will and character known to his people. As Christians seek to live in conformity to Scripture, they are in fact pursuing the very perfection of God. This verse provides the conclusion to the antithesis, showing that all of the law and the prophets find their perfect fulfillment in the perfection of the Father, which is what all Jesus' disciples are called to pursue. You and I are called to pursue perfection. That's a crazy and uncomfortable and impossible thought until we're reminded of the fact that if we could give up of our own sinful nature and say, I want to follow after the Holy Spirit, it's in those moments where we can do things like which Richard Wombrandt and the rest of the captives with him did. Not because he had more strength than we do. Not because he had more grace or more compassion. It's because in those moments he went, I'm not going to do what's natural, I'm going to do what's supernatural, and I'm going to let the Holy Spirit lead me. This doesn't mean that you and I are going to walk out of here and go, I'm going to live the rest of my life in perfection. What it means is that we can submit to the Holy Spirit and he can supernaturally intervene and can take us through situations that we would have never thought possible. 
that we would look at and say, it's impossible to do that, God. And God goes, I make my living on impossible. Just trust me. Just walk with me. Just be faithful. And so when we read these things, we should read the Old Testament with the same understanding is that all of those laws, all of them were meant to separate his people to put their faith and their trust fully in a God who is trustworthy and had plans and purposes for them. And we in this day, we have, well, God has plans and purposes for us too. We are the church and we are here to permeate as agents of redemption. We exist to shine a light to the world so that they might see Jesus. And as has already been said back in, in verse uh, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That's why we exist. That's what it means to understand Scripture is that Christ would be exalted, not us. God, thank you. Thank you that we have so clearly seen here that while we have such a long way to go, we fall so short that Jesus came and that Jesus lived this perfect life. And he lived in complete submission to the Father's will. And that Jesus went willingly to the cross and that he died in our place that we might have salvation. And God, we know from what Scripture teaches that when we put our faith and our trust in you and we make Jesus Lord of our life, that you give us the Holy Spirit so that we can live in a radically new and different way so that the world could see it and they don't see us. They see you in us. And so God, I pray that as we head off to our works, our, our careers, our family, our friends, the social circles that we interact with, that we would permeate society as agents of redemption, that they would see Jesus, and they would say, I need that, I want that. As we turn to communion now, would we be reminded that it's not through good works that we're saved. We don't seek to live as this new kind of human so that we can somehow earn salvation. We know that it is only a gift from Jesus through his death and resurrection and ascension. And so as we consider the cross for these next few moments, would you help us see scripture for what it is? Would we see ourselves for who we are? And would we run after you? Amen. If you just want to flip to 1 Corinthians, I'm just going to read a few verses. I'll invite the guys up who are going to help. 